And as you take notes this morning, I want you to write on top of your message notes, turn the porch light on. Turn the porch light on. I believe God is uh, speaking to us today. You may have come into the room with the mindset that in this life, God will just do whatever God wants to do. But I want to invite you into the discovery that God will do whatever his people ask and seek and press him for and pull from him. That God is wanting to accomplish his will, but he wants to do it through our faith and our action. God is waiting to hear our voices. He's waiting to hear the cries of our heart. And when we align our hearts with his will, there's a collision that happens and it brings change. It makes a difference. It changes the world around us. Well, about 800 years before Jesus was born, Israel and Judah, two separate kingdoms at this point, were experiencing prosperity, crazy prosperity, uh, matching the time of Solomon. King Uzziah was ruling in Judah, and King Jeroboam, Jeroboam was ruling in Israel. And uh, during this time, they stopped all the plunder of the Canaanite groups. They stopped the Philistine plunder in their land. They recaptured caravan routes and trade through their region. And they also reopened all the ports they had along the Mediterranean Sea. This was a time of economic boom and military uh, strength. From 790 to 750 BC, this is before the Assyrian and Babylonian conquest. Uh, it has not yet occurred, but what is beginning in this time of prosperity is moral decay. There are some signs of things to come. They haven't been uh, totally conquered and subjugated, but they are beginning to break the covenant relationship that they have with God that is going to remove God's favor and blessing from their lives. Um, it's, it's out there on the horizon. Times are good, but there's something coming because of what's happening in their hearts. Prosperity leads to passivity, and passivity leads to paralysis. And that's what's beginning to happen in Israelite culture. They're becoming indifferent and lethargic, and that's leading them into insensitivity towards God. Their culture was arranged by God's law, and the whole theocracy, their society, was set up so that all of their daily life would revolve around their worship of God. How they operated, the, the laws they followed to honor God, how they focused their week around worshiping God, and on the Sabbath, honoring God through rest. Everything in their culture was to revolve around God to be theocentric, not about them, not about their business, their prosperity. It was all about their worship of God. But what happened during this time, instead of their culture revolving around God, their, their culture started to become a pleasure-seeking culture, turning from seeking God to seeking pleasure. Um, and, and as they turned to sensuality, the people of God became far from God. How can I tell you this today? How do I know this? It's because during this 40-year period, God sends four prophets to Israel and Judah. He sends Joel. We're going to be looking at the words of Joel today. Uh, he sends Amos. He sends Hosea. And then uh, not only those prophets to Israel and Judah, but he, he sends Jonah out of Israel to go to the Ninevites and gives us a picture of the attitude of Israel. 
that they are no longer a light to the nations. They no longer have a heart for the Gentiles. They only care about themselves. And so we get a good idea of the society that the prophet Joel walked among because of all four of the indictments of these prophets. He sends these four prophets in this period to sound a spiritual alarm to sensual slumber. People had just become numb and desensitized towards God. They're focused on pleasing themselves, gratifying their own desires, and they become so distant, they don't even know what God wants anymore. They're not even sensing the desire of God for their life. And I don't know if that's a ministry that any of us would choose. You know, alarms, to be an alarm, it's an annoying thing. When I choose my alarm on my cell phone to wake me up in the morning, I'm not choosing the most peaceful noise I can sound in my phone, find in my phone. I want the most annoying sound that is going to get me out of bed, that I'm not going to press snooze on, that's going to get, you know, I do every minute I have a new alarm for about five minutes just to make sure it happens. And he gives the ministry to these four individuals to sound an alarm, to sound an alarm. And we're going to uh, look at what God says through them. Um, but this is what they address through their prophetic words. It's kind of an overview of Hosea, Amos, and Joel today. God addresses drunkenness in sensual living. Each of these prophets call people out of drunkenness. Everybody's on something in Israelite culture. They've all turned to making their bodies feel good, their minds feel good. They're revolving around pleasure-seeking. He calls them out of greed. They're taking bribes. He calls them out of injustice. He says they're trampling the poor, crushing the weak, and exerting unfair taxes. He calls them out of their, their normal modus operandi being anger and wrath. He says the way you treat your family members how you respond situation after situation. You're full of anger. You have no peace and you're wrathful. He calls them out on mistreating immigrants and foreigners, not caring uh, for those that have been displaced, for those that are moving among them that have needs. He calls their worship hypocritical. They are ignorant of God. They have no understanding of God in relationship. They know how to go through the motions. They know how to click copy and paste in the synagogue, but they are disconnected from the heart of God. They're no longer walking in relationship with him. So they know about God, but they don't know God anymore. And he says that they are living in complete and repeated infidelity. Hosea, uh, his life becomes an illustration of this type of infidelity that God is experiencing through our idolatry, choosing to worship ourselves and worship idols. He says, you are simultaneously worshiping Baals, idols, even in my temple. Even in my temple, you're simultaneously trying to worship me and worship all these other things. And he calls them out on living by politics and military power. They're trusting their political alliances with Assyria, which is about to crumble, and Assyria is going to come and conquer that northern kingdom. And they're trusting their political alliances with Egypt. And they're so excited about the military power that's growing and growing instead of trusting God, of living by faith. They're living by the false security, the false sense of security that the culture can give them, politically and in military protection. This is Joel's message. You uh, may have heard some very popular messages from the 
the book of Joel. It's just three chapters. And there's some popular highlighted scriptures here. We're not going to hit the popular highlighted scriptures today. We're going to do a deep dive and look at some deep cuts in the book of Joel. And I want to pull out just in a teaching some significance that you might not be aware of, but I believe God wants to speak to your heart this morning. This is Joel, uh, some selections from chapter one and two. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. All night church service. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. If you're noticing a repetition and an emphasis on this theme of grain and drink offerings, very perceptive. Note that. We're going to come back to that. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Then in chapter two, it continues and says, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, tear your heart, he says, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. This is a quote from Deuteronomy and he relents from sending calamity. God is ready to be responsive. You've broken a covenant with him. He's ready to be responsive to you. You deserve wrath. You deserve judgment. You deserve for uh, uh, the curse of breaking the covenant to come, but God is so ready to respond. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. What blessing? Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. Catch this. Gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, and even those nursing at the breast, even nursing babies. God wants to do something. We're going to get to this in a minute. Let the bridegroom leave his room and let the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico, the porch, and the altar, two areas of the temple. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn and shame, a byword or an insult among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? And this is God's response. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. He replied, I am sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will you be shamed, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen, amen, and amen. So what's this about? January 7th, it's our first Sunday of the year. Next Sunday, we're going to start a Seek Week, um, and we're going to have extra spiritual emphasis time to pursue God. This is what's going to happen. 
on the 14th, we're going to meet right here and have our weekend worship experience at 10.30 a.m. And then the 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. The sanctuary is going to be open for morning, noon, and evening prayer meetings. 7 a.m., noon, and 7 p.m. We'll have prayer meetings happening right here. Then on Friday and Saturday, we're going to have two experience, worship experiences in the evening. So on Friday night, we'll have a guest speaker, and we'll be here praying and seeking God at 7. On Saturday, we'll be right back here praying and seeking God at 7 next week. And then we go into Vision Sunday, January 21st. It's going to be a week of fasting. I'm going to ask you to fast. We're going to send out a lot of fasting resources to you. You might say, hey, I don't even know what that is, or maybe I haven't done that before, uh, or I'm, I'm kind of new to that spiritual discipline, and I need a little on-ramp. Great. We're going to give you a lot of information about fasting. I'm going to talk about it in a few moments as well. Um, but we're going to call our church Everyone Fasting Something. And we're going to ask God to do some things among us in our relationships and in our hearts. So next week, it's Seek Week. It starts Sunday, it goes through Saturday, and it leads us into Vision Sunday. You'll see a lot of resources um, in email and text and on social media. But I want to prepare you today. Today is a pre-Seek Week. We're prepping to seek and pursue God. What is this about? We just read this passage that had a lot of emphasis on wailing, weeping, and mourning. And you might say, Anthony, I can't cry on command this morning. I don't know what you're going to ask of me. And, and maybe you left your sackcloth in the car today, and that's okay. But this morning is about our hearts. This morning is about self-examination and activation spiritually. We're going to ask, am I withholding my worship from God? Am I disconnected from the daily offerings that he is asking of me? Am I uh, a tearless Christian following a tearful Christ? Am I positioned in the gap, interceding between the porch and the altar for the world around me, for the people who are far from God and distant from God, who he is desperate to meet? Am I reaching out in daily worship? Am I walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? And am I walking in God's blessing? Today is not a day where we're just going to complain about our culture and complain about the sins of America. We're going to repent for ours. We're going to look introspectively and repent and ask God to restore us and then ask God to help us stand in the gap. That's what today is about. There are three indictments of compromised worship that we see in the book of Joel. Drunkenness and indulgence. People have taken the prosperity that God has blessed them with and used the prosperity that's a gift from God as a new religion to worship themselves. They've taken God's gift and used God's gift to worship themselves. They're indulgent. They are selfish in their religion. There are those with needs among them that they no longer care for. We see this in, in the, the twin message between Joel and Jonah. Couldn't care less about those that are ignorant of God, suffering in their sins, disconnected from the knowledge of God. Their religion has become selfless or selfish and their spirit has become desensitized. There is no longer a soil that is being watered by the broken hearts and the tears of God's people. They become desensitized. 
what's happening is, uh, is I just wanted to really drive it home today and help you catch it. The main issue is that in this culture and society that was built to revolve around God, they have displaced, compromised, and hijacked their worship. The engine of society, the fountain of their life is communion with the holy God, and they have compromised that. Hosea 6, 6 says it this way. It, again, same time period. This is what God is saying about the worship of Israel. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. They had found these shortcuts to do what God has asked them to do without going through their heart. God wants this offering of me. He wants this sacrifice from me. He wants uh, me to go through these motions. And instead of them connecting their heart to their religion and their worship going through their heart, their worship is bypassing their heart. They've found a shortcut that is totally exterior and not interior. And God says, that's not what I desire. I want acknowledgement of God. I want your heart to be filled with mercy. Amos 4, 4 and 5. God is employing sarcasm and irony here, just like Elijah, just like Paul, to highlight the foolishness of their idolatry. He says, go to Bethel and sin. This is a place of worship. He says, yeah, go there and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years, your leavened bread as a thank offering, and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do. Isaiah says it this way, and Isaiah is a, a little further down the path of broken covenant with God and broken relationship with God. He says their worship has turned worthless. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough burnt offerings, rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. All your festivals, new moon, Sabbath, convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your feasts and festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And then Amos 2.8 says this. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. The, the sacrifices they're making to God, they're getting drunk on their own sacrifices. They've taken their worship of God and said, how can this please me? They've taken their church attendance. They've taken what should be an opportunity for them to give God what he is worthy of and he is due, and they've made it all about their preferences. This is heavy stuff. This is prophetic. Joel is prophesying this to Israel, but I believe God is prophesying this to us today. Let me talk to you about a couple of these things. First of all, worship is being withheld. We read that scripture. Um, he, he says, uh, you have withheld your worship from me. And he's thrice repeated this theme of grain offerings and drink offerings. First, in chapter one, verse nine, he says, your grain offerings and drink offerings have been cut off from the temple. Then he says they've been withheld from the temple. And then in 2.14, he says, possibly they could be restored. God just might, who knows is what the scripture says. Who knows, God might relent and leave behind a blessing of grain 
and drink offerings. What does this mean? Well, the grain offering was a daily offering that was offered to God. There's about four different words used to talk about grain offerings in Hebrew, and each one of them talks about remembrance of iniquity. God, I come before you and I offer you this offering because I take a moment to remember you're God, I'm not, and I'm not even worthy to stand before you. I'm a sinner. That's what the grain offering is all about. And then the grain offering acknowledges God. So I'm here to first remember my sin and then acknowledge that you, God, are the answer to my sin. You are my greatest need in life. The, the grain offering is all about surrender, recognition and surrender. It was a daily offering. Another daily offering that was given is the drink offering. There are three different types of drink offerings, but the one in Leviticus called the libation, the main drink offering, this was offered every day. Now, the grain offering was all about surrender. The drink offering was all about service. And I have a prop to help me out this morning. You may have seen these before. They're kind of taking the world by storm right now. This is a Stanley mug. Um, now, a drink offering was a quarter hen, the Bible tells us, and it was offered in a golden jug, and it was poured out before the Lord in front of the altar. There were kind of cracks in the floor and a drainage system that happened under the temple that would capture all this stuff. This was a, a kind of a unique offering. It wasn't eaten by the priests. It wasn't to bless the priests. This was all about God's pleasure. It said it was a sweet aroma before the Lord. A, a hen is about a gallon and a half, so a quarter hen is about 40 ounces, so it's about a Stanley mug's worth of wine. Um, and now these aren't golden pitchers, but the way these things are selling, you think they were golden pitchers? Um, Candace wanted one for Christmas. This is Candace's today. Um, and she, she had dropped hints and she mentioned it a lot, but she hadn't outright asked for it because there's some tension in our house about how many water bottles we have. And, and I mean cheapo freebie water bottles. You go to T-Mobile, you leave with some plastic thing. Uh, we, we have so many of these. I mean, if you stand anywhere in our house and you just spin around one time, you just knocked over three water bottles. And, uh, and they're everywhere. So I, uh, I saw that this, you know, color that Candace liked, I saw that five of them hit the shelf at Target in Towson. This is about a week before Christmas. And it was right at the end of, end of work. I drive straight there. I go in. And me and a lady are walking to the shelf. And there are two left. There's two left. I literally saw that they were available. I drove straight there, and there's only two left. And the lady walks up and, and grabs one, and I walk up and grab one, and we look at each other, and we cheers, and we walked away. They're, they're, uh, they're definitely in demand. There's some special colors right now that are selling for like $800 on the Internet. It's ridiculous. It's a cult is what it is. Um, and so anyway... Christmas morning comes, and I know Candace is about to open this gift, and as she pulls it open, I said, hold on, there's a condition to this gift. Nobody likes it when there's strings attached to a gift, right? But I said, uh, you know, as you open this and you receive something, it's going to involve you getting rid of some things. And so she opened it, and then she agreed to get rid of three water bottles in our house, and she did. Praise the Lord. I'll put this right here. Uh, Good stuff. Well, what does that have to do? <laughs> what does that have to do with the drink offering? Um, well, that is something that is for daily use. 
The drink offerings were part of daily worship. The reason that God is bringing up to the Israelites the grain offering and the drink offering is because these were the daily sacrifices. And what he is saying to them is you have lost your daily walk with me. You've lost your daily relationship with me. I've become an idea to you. I've become a cultural external event to you. I'm just something you do at holidays and festivals and you've lost that abiding walk. What he's illustrating is that he wants them to return to him to be able to say every single day, I'm surrendered and every single day I'm serving. The drink offering represents the joy of being poured out before God in service. God's joy and our joy when we serve him. When we stop building our own kingdoms, when we stop uh, orienting our lives around pleasure, but when we orient our lives around God's pleasure, we are fulfilled. You know when you pursue uh, gratifying your own senses, you live uh, not by sensitivity to God, but by sensuality? When you live that way, you never quite get fulfilled. You're always a little bit empty and a little bit more empty and a little bit more empty. And it, of course, it requires a little bit more to get you to have a good feeling again, right? If, if somebody has a, an addiction to alcohol or to drugs, to chase after the same high you experience, it takes a little more and a little more and a little more, and then it leaves you a little emptier and a little emptier and a little emptier. And God is saying, you've lost what fulfills you, that daily surrender and daily serving. So who is withholding the connection? Who is withholding this abiding relationship? First, worship is withheld by God's people. He says, you have withheld the offerings from the temple. And then God sends the locusts. Remember, we started by talking about the locusts. So the prosperity has taken a big hit in Israel and Judah because God is so unsatisfied with their worship. Their worship that's become empty, their worship that they won't even give him, the grain offering and the drink offering, that he's removed the ability for them to worship. Catch this. First, they don't worship. They withhold their worship then God takes away their ability to worship. Where worship is abandoned, the presence of God is absent. Because God had become unwelcome and God had become uninvited, then the people became unable to connect with God. They were self-devastating their own identity, a plague on their spiritual lives by breaking the covenant. And that spiritual devastation was way worse and way more tragic than the economic collapse uh, of being deprived of their luxuries, of the locusts coming and taking away their crops and their, uh, their livestock. Amos and Hosea tell us that they were giving these drink offerings instead of offering them to God, they were giving them to pagan gods and like we read, using them as an opportunity to get drunk themselves. So God takes away their opportunity to offer the daily sacrifice, sends the locusts as a wake-up call he put an end to their empty rituals. They should have understood that God was correcting them and warning them about their spiritual condition. God is sounding an alarm. They're not getting it. So he sends prophets to speak out an alarm. And, and can I just say that today you might be where the Israelites were, passive and indifferent towards God for a time, and now you've found yourself paralyzed. You were walking in prosperity 
A lot of times the bad times make us look to God and lean on God, but you were walking in prosperity and God got knocked down your priority list. You stopped orienting your life around him. You got passive and indifferent. You got indulgent. And that led you into paralysis. And you might want the presence of God again. You might say today, where is the walk with God that I once had? I was surrendered. I was serving. I want to pray now, but I feel like I can't even pray. I want to to worship again, but I feel too disconnected to even begin. You're trying to reconnect, but something is missing. I want the fire back in my bones again. I want Pentecost back with signs, wonders, and miracles following. I want to care again. I want to be able to weep and wail and mourn and cry and fast. I want to be able to pursue a tearful savior with tears in my eyes as well. I want that back. But now that you want it again, you've found that the presence is gone. That may be where you're at today. And you you might say, God, I I know there's something missing. I want to reconnect, but I don't know how to do it. In the instruction that God gives that we're about to read in Joel chapter two, verse 17, is to you. He's saying, this is your way back. This is how you get back to me. He's saying uh, that, that, yeah, you want back, but your tears are missing. Don't return dry ground to God. He wants good soil. God's saying, give me tears again. This passage is not only about our restored relationship with God, but it's also about our restored mission from God. The priests are called in verse 17 to minister before the Lord between the porch and the altar. Let's read this scripture again. It says, let the priests who minister before the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Just like at your house, that porch is a transitional space from the cocoon of your home where you experience belonging and identity to the separated outside world. The porch in the temple was a gateway and entrance from the outer court into the inner court, or we call the priest, the court of the priests and the court of the people. And this uh, porch, portico, gateway, arch, or entrance, that's all the same word in Hebrew and Greek, this portico, this porch, was used by the priests to pray and to worship and to minister. The altar was next to the portico, and, and there was a separation. The porch is the line where the outer court is, where the inner court is. And he calls them to minister between the altar of sacrifice where things die and ultimately we understand symbolically that Jesus would die to make us right with him, between the altar where you're made right with God and the porch where people who are far from God, who are unable to stand before him are, he calls the priests to fill that space up with weeping and wailing and mourning. That porch gateway on the other side of it, it's people desperate to meet Jesus, the Lamb of God 
whose sacrifice takes away the sins of the world. And he's calling the priests to become the intermediaries again. That's who we are today. We're a kingdom of priests, those that walk with God, that are right with God, who have the presence of God in their hearts, just like it was in the Holy of Holies, because the veil was ripped in two at Jesus's death. And he said, my glory can now reside in the souls of every believer, every redeemed person. I'll fulfill uh, their spirit with my spirit. Each and every one of us are, are part of this priesthood. And he's saying, will you weep again? Will you minister between the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the people who need him? Will you stand in the gap? Will you be that intermediary? You know, interruptions. If, you're, if you look at folks that are disconnected from God and your heart breaks and you say, I want there to be a change this year in 2024. I want my family to change. I want there to be restoration this year. Things cannot continue the way, on the way they are. You need to become an intercessor because interruptions happen through intercession. And that's what he's calling the priests to become, intercessors. If you want there to be a difference and the people on the porch, you want to see them at the altar, you need to stand in the middle and represent me and cry out for them. And there, there needs to be some tears hitting the ground. My fear is that we have lost our weep. In the West, we have sweeping godlessness and confusion. And, and what we need to understand is the brokenness around us that is on the rise. The brokenness of our culture is an opportunity for us to recapture that unorthodox attitude of personal passion. God is literally telling them, I'm tired of business as usual. Put an end to it. I'm sick of it. I'm weary of it because it's going around your heart and it's not going through your heart. So sound an alarm. There needs to be disruption. Something has to change. It has to become an unorthodox attitude of personal passion again. Where are the weeping advocates and ambassadors and apostles and servant vessels who are compelled beyond self-centered religion, religion that says, well, I made it to church this month what? Who did you bring with you? Who are you praying for? God is looking to us and he's saying, parents who have that teenager that's far from God, that's wayward, that's in rebellion, if they got in a car accident this week and they died, they would be spending eternity apart for God. Where are the weeping parents? He's saying to, to teenagers and young people and grown people with adult parents who are far for God to understand your parents are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy and you need to be praying for them in living in a way that points them to Jesus. Where are the weeping children and siblings and cousins that care? Where are the people that'll see news edition after news edition, breaking news to Baltimore Sun, to WBAL, uh, day after day. And instead of just complaining about our culture, we'll pray. We'll pray for our county. We'll pray for our city. We'll post some things on our church, shining a light in our city, taking steps to advance the kingdom in this city. Where are the weepers? God's calling us to turn on our porch lights. It is uh, not enough 
It is not enough for us to be at the altar. There's a witness that's crucial. It's the key to your life. Abide with Jesus, abide with Jesus, abide with Jesus. But witness, being with him, leads to witness. It has to lead to witness. You have to go from the altar to the porch. You gotta go out where the people are and you gotta turn the light on and point people to Jesus. And if your porch light is off, if you're not broadcasting and advertising Jesus, it's time to turn it on and maybe change the bulb out and put a higher wattage in there and clean out the cobwebs because people need to understand that there is a vision of God before them, an example of people walking with the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, that's living life differently, that it that does have new that does have new grain, that is satisfied by God, that it's possible to be connected with him in daily surrender, in daily sacrifice. Jeremiah 9.1, Jeremiah says, I wish my head were a fountain so I could weep all day and all night. Three actions Joel calls us to. First, attention. Wake up, sound the alarm, blow the trumpet. Wake up, sound the alarm, blow the trumpet. God wants your attention in a new and specific way. No more copy and paste, no more going through the, mo- the motions. He wants something personal from you. And can I, can I say this? You know what's very, very personal? It can't, it can't not be personal, suffering. If you fast during Seek Week, your relationship with God will be personal because your hunger is gonna be your hunger. Your thirst is gonna be your thirst. He wants attention and he wants return. Return to me with fasting, weeping, and mourning. He wants authenticity. He says, let your hearts be broken. No more external expressions. Tearing your clothes, good for you. I'm tired of the external stuff that's avoiding your heart. He says, tear your hearts. It has to be internal, it has to be personal. Self-denial is personal. It is personal. Fasting is a physical expression of a spiritual reality. The reality is I need Jesus. I need Jesus more than I need my next meal. I need Jesus more uh, than I need my next snack. I need Jesus more than, than my apps on my phone. Whatever I'm fasting, I'm declaring a spiritual reality with my physical expression. And, and fasting should be routine routinely, a routine reminder that I need you more, God. I need you more. There's things that I'm asking you for that I haven't seen yet. God, I want you to know my faith. I'm desperate, God. I'm willing to deny myself. It should be routine, but it should also be periodic and specific. That's what we're going into with this corporate fast for our church starting next Sunday. No fasting says this to God. It says, God, I've declared my faith in you, but I'm gonna live and have your victory in my strength. What a life with no fasting says. Hey, I'm gonna do this all in my strength. I have faith in you, Jesus, but I'm gonna gratify my own desires. I'm gonna live my own way and I'm gonna have victory in my strength. When you fast, you declare by faith that Uh, Faith is leading me into a life of dependence on God's strength, not my own. Let your impulse be to fast. When you wanna overcome sin, fast. When you need to make a decision, fast. When you wanna win a soul to Jesus, fast. 
Let it be your compulsion, that you're bent towards it and led towards it. May God forgive us for neglecting the joy of fasting in our lives and return to him throughout this season at Trinity. These are three actions Joel calls us to. And then here's three things that Joel asks of God. We saw it in chapter 2, 17. The priests stand between the porch and the altar. They fast, weep, and mourn, and they say, spare us. Spare your people. Give us mercy. God, we've compromised our worship. We deserve separation, but instead fill us with the joy of your presence. Give us that vivacious relationship that is planted in our repentance. We're sorry. We're returning different. We're not, going, we're not coming back in the same door we went out. We're walking back to you different, God. And that might be you today. You maybe took that most precious and sacred thing of your life that your life should revolve around. And you've tried to bury it under a bunch of me stuff. Don't bury it. Don't deprioritize God. Put him back on the throne. And the second thing Joel asks of God is to restore us. Restore our reputation as your people. We acted shamefully, and unless you act redemptively, we're going to become a byword, a common insult. That's what a byword means. It's a one-word insult that everybody understands. When people say Sodom and Gomorrah, they understand what they're talking about. When people would say Nineveh, when people say Nazareth, when people would say the Samaritans, these words became bywords to people. And in what Joel is saying to the priests is you need to cry out to God, spare us and restore us or else. When people say Israel, when people say Judah, it's not going to be in glorifying God and seeing the good works and the light of our faith and glorifying him. It's going to be just an excuse that justifies their idolatry and justifies their unbelief because of our bad example. God, we need you to act redemptively to restore us or else, Lord, we're just gonna be a joke. Mm. And that, that word, byword, it implies a, a reigning condescension where people are only gonna talk about us in an air of being better than us. And that's okay. The goal is not to get even with people who think they're better than us or look down on our faith. The goal is for them not to, to see that we are better. The goal is for them to see that Jesus is best and see Jesus in our lives. Everything else is irrelevant. And the third thing he says, God's priests cry out to God, spare us, restore us, and show others. Don't let them say, about Israel, don't let the peoples and the nations say, where is their God? But when they look at us, show them who you are. Show that godless world a vision of anointed, abiding, God-centered living. Show people who are distant an example that it is possible to walk with and connect with and be filled with God. And I just want to close with this final thought specific verse we read and in worship team you can come back and join us we're going to take time at the end of service today to have prayer partners forward and just to seek after god and worship him like he's called us to do in his word he he said what i want to do among you this is what god is saying in joel 2 what i want to do among you the response the blessing that i want to bring it cannot be accomplished just by the priests weeping and mourning and fasting. 
He says, you need to bring into the assembly everyone. I want you to bring the elders. I want you to bring the young people, the young adults. I even want you to bring the nursing babies. And you might read that like I read that and say like, okay, Israel is in a situation of covenant brokenness, of waywardness. They're worshiping themselves. That's not the baby's fault, God. That's not the baby's fault. Don't make the babies clean up the adults' messes. Don't make, don't make the next generation pay for the previous generation. Now, why do the babies have to take care of this? God's not saying it's the baby's fault. He's saying, I have a blessing for you, a response that's for them too. It, the curse might not be on them. It not, might not be their fault, but the blessing is gonna be for them. And here's what happens. There's something that gets unleashed and unlocked in multi-generational unity. When everyone reaches, everyone is blessed. When everyone reaches out to God together, there's a blessing that comes for everybody. Well, I didn't commit the sin. I didn't go wayward. It wasn't on me. That's no problem, but God still has a blessing for you. God still has a response that is gonna bless you. I want God to bless us in such a way during Seek Week, throughout January, and throughout 2024 that's gonna trickle into the lives of our youth, of our Trinity kids, of the babies in the nursery. And, and you know another reason why I think God said, bring all those kids in the room, bring all those babies in the room that don't even know how to sing yet, they don't, they don't even know how to do anything but disrupt and, and be cry, is because God is preaching a message of disruption. He's saying, good, maybe the babies will scream the whole service and interrupt your external copy and paste routine. So he calls the babies to be in the room too. And he even calls the bridegroom and the bride on their special day. And this is what God is saying. God is saying, interrupt every special event because you've lost the special relationship. Your marriages won't be blessed. Your homes won't be blessed. Your, your land won't be blessed. The soil won't be blessed. Nothing will be blessed unless you return to the special relationship and orient your lives around me again. That's harsh, God. My special day? The cake's already been made? There's something that's sacred, that's sacred about your walk with God about your soul. It's more important than every circumstance. It's more important than every event in your calendar. It's more important than all the things we're looking forward to this year. There's something about your knees on the ground, your heart bowed before God that nothing else can duplicate. It's personal. And that's what God wants. That's what God wants. Would you stand with me today? Your sackcloth's in the car. You can't cry on command. That's fine. God is here and he just wants to connect with you. He wants your heart. He wants to hear from you. And can I encourage you? The first step of, of the influence on the porch, the first step of the renewed blessings of God, it's repentance. It's repentance. It's personal brokenness before the Lord. So today, would you just take time during this worship uh, service you just take time and tear your heart before God and open up and say, okay, God, I've fallen short. I've fallen short of your glory. 
God, forgive me of my negligence of you. Forgive me for deprioritizing you. And God, come to the tippy top of my heart. I want it all back. More than I've ever been passionate about you before, I want you to burn inside of me in 2024. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, as the prayer partners come forward and as we align ourselves with the truth of your word, let us worship you in spirit and in truth, not just in routines, in rituals, not in any, any motion to go through, but God, let us worship you authentically and passionately. God, won't you respond to us? Won't you see our heart after you and move among us? I love what your scripture says, God. Who knows? Who knows what God has in store? Who knows what you're waiting to do, but you're waiting to see what we will do. God, today we begin to ask and seek and knock for new things in a new way. Restore our hearts and Lord, restore those that are far from your altar to that sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the love of God, Lord, that wants to transform them forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Church, let's worship God together today.